Our text is technically Acts 18.23 all the way through the end of chapter 19, 1941. But I'm going to read just uh, what I think is a, a helpful short summary, and then we'll come back and walk through the entire text. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to read um, Acts 19, verses 8 to 10, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll walk through it together. So Acts 19, verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in, the, in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and, and Greeks. Join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for how, uh, through many different means this morning already, our hearts have been drawn to you. Lord, we've, um, we've been helped significantly in the Course Seminar hour, thinking of Jesus and anticipating opportunities to reflect him as light in this world and then to uh, penetrate this world as as salt all um, for the glory of his name in our world. And then, Lord, we've come to this room together and heard uh, scripture read and prayed over a couple of different times already. And then have had the privilege of of joining our voices together in, in song to sing praise to you for who you are and for what you've done. And now, Lord, as we have most recently sang together, we come to the, the part of our service where we, um, we know, Lord, that you do continue to speak through your word. It's, it's living. It's powerful. It, um, when blessed by you, has the power to, to do that which you've designed for it to do, which is conform us to the image of of Jesus. So, Lord, by your Spirit, would you do that during this time in this text this morning? And we offer this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text last week ended in Antioch. It also ended the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. If you remember correctly, if you think back on his way home, he takes with him Priscilla and Aquila, whom he met in Corinth. And on the way back, it seems like Paul, the text just feels like he's in a hurry to get back. He wants to fulfill this vow that he's taken. But they stop at least for one Sabbath in Ephesus, where it tells us that he teaches, he he reasons with the Jews in the synagogue at least one Sabbath, and the people in Ephesus request that the Apostle Paul stay longer with them. Acts 18 and verse 20 tells us Paul declined that request. 
He declined. We later learn that Priscilla and Aquila apparently stay. But Paul says this immediately following his declining of their request. He says in Acts 18.20, I will return to you if God wills. And our text today is the willing of God for Paul to return to the people in Ephesus. It's actually the beginning of his third missionary journey where he's sent again out of the church at Antioch. And we later learn that the ultimate destination is Rome. But Acts 19 represents a three-year stop in Ephesus on the way to that ultimate destination. Verse 23 begins by tracing the route he takes to get there. And it's significant that we... um, Just even look on a a map of Paul's missionary journeys. What's significant about that is that we learn from verse 23 that he stops and visits the churches that he and Barnabas had established on their first missionary journey. And that's significant because there is this ongoing effort, this ongoing expression of pastoral care to these people. Every chance he gets, this is the third time now, he's stopped in on these... um, bodies of believers and helped them, nourished them, brought them further along in in the faith. He's serving as a pastor to them. It's interesting that as he's on his way to Ephesus, the camera just momentarily leaves Paul on his journey and actually beats him to Ephesus where we have the opportunity to catch up with Priscilla and Aquila, who, remember, apparently stayed there when Paul and Priscilla and Aquila were returning from Corinth together. They stop in Ephesus. Paul comes back. They stay. The camera beats Paul back, allows us to catch up with them. And when we catch up with them, we're also introduced to a guy who is somewhat of a significant figure in the New Testament. And when we're introduced to him... um, the interaction with him is just somewhat confusing. So I do, I do feel with a couple of, couple of different incidents early on in our text to possibly be a little bit more teachy because they're controversial, kind of confusing what's going on with Apollos, what's going on with these 12 people that Paul runs into when he comes to Ephesus. So let's just um, slow down some and try to walk through this together. Note a couple of things that we're told clearly about Apollos when we run into him. We note, first of all, that he is a Jew. We catch up to the verse just in case you need to be pointed there. Verse 24 of chapter 18. Apollos is a Jew. Secondly, says here clearly he is eloquent. Third, he's competent in the scriptures. Fourth, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Fifth, he's obviously passionate. He's fervent in spirit as he's teaching in the synagogue. And sixth, and I I would say most significantly, Apollos spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So we have there at least six. You could probably pull out more. We have at least six encouraging things that just fill out the picture of Apollos, but they're kind of offset by this one somewhat threatening revelation about him. It's a very interesting thing about his theology in particular. It says, though he knew only the baptism of John. 
So six positive things offset by one, just somewhat interesting thing. We know it's meant to be a red flag to us because in our text, Priscilla and Aquila hear him teaching in the synagogue and they take him aside and they do their best to fill in a gap in his theology. So rather than engage and give you all the perspectives about what's going on with Apollos, I'm just going to tell you what I think is going on with him, at least at this point. And if you disagree with me, um, I would hope that we could still be friends because this isn't a deal-breaker issue, at least it shouldn't be to any of us. I personally think that Apollos is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that simply has a major gap in his theology. And that major gap in his theology is a lack of understanding of what Christian baptism is. And and the reason that I say that is you've got to be really careful not to lump Apollos in with the group that we meet immediately after in Ephesus in chapter 19. Because I think two different things are going on entirely. So let's skip there and then we'll come back and explain Apollos. When the Apostle Paul gets to Ephesus, we learn in chapter 19 that he meets a group of 12 people. And and they're called disciples. They're called believers. And when Paul encounters them, he asks them whether or not they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. Let's just walk through the conversation. He says in verse 2, he asks if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. They respond, no, no. We have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asks, into what then were you baptized? And they say, into John's baptism. Paul then explains, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And verse 5 crucially tells us that on hearing this, so what did they hear? They heard, believe in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And the text goes on to just reveal that they had their own little mini Pentecost there as Paul lays his hands on them and they received the Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. That's a lot of detail given for the picture of these 12 people that Paul encounters. I would argue these people were disciples of John. They were, in fact, believers in the one who was to come, but they were converted to Jesus when Paul explained, no, John's message wasn't an end in and of itself. He was calling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, and he's come. We're told that upon hearing that Jesus had come, these 12 were baptized in the name of Jesus, and received the Holy Spirit. That's a lot of detail for them, and none of that is shared in reference to Apollos. He's not a part of these 12. He's actually ministering in the church in Corinth by the time this happens. So what I'm saying is don't let Apollos' lack of understanding of Christian baptism trump everything else good that has been said about him at this point. He was competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, although he only knew the baptism of John. We're not told at all ever that Priscilla and Aquila baptized him. 
We're not told that they or Paul lay their hands on him or that he receives the Holy Spirit here. We're simply told there is a gap in his theology in the area of baptism. And I I think the point in including both of these accounts here, especially back to back, isn't to debate Apollos or the Twelve as much as to rejoice in and to be challenged by the work of the Spirit in Priscilla and Aquila in reference to Apollos and to rejoice in and be challenged by the work of the Spirit in Paul in reference to the twelve disciples of John. So if you want to disagree with me concerning some detail of that, that's, that's fine. I'm open to being corrected on that, but don't miss the point here. The point is, here we have both leadership in the church, in the Apostle Paul, and a married couple in the church, in Priscilla and Aquila, both being theologically informed enough and caring enough that they actually take the time to invest in others, to fill gaps in their theology, so that they will be better off in the end and more useful for the kingdom of God in the end. And while we have no idea what happens to the twelve that Paul encounters here and baptizes and lays his hands on, I guess we just have to assume they became part of the church at Ephesus. While we don't have any idea ultimately what happens to those twelve, we do know what Priscilla and Aquila's investment in Apollos did. Because the church in Ephesus shortly thereafter sends him out with a letter of recommendation to the church in Corinth. Where later on when Paul writes that church, he's mentioned twice in the same sentence with Peter and Paul as far as influence in the church. A few sentences ago I emphasized the word and in reference to being theologically informed and Caring. Because if you are not both, and if you're content to be just one or the other, I would say that you are in just as much need of help as Apollos was here. If you're theologically informed, but you're unconcerned, uncaring about people, your disconnect is going to make you absolutely unhelpful to your church. And if you just track history, people like this probably don't stay long anywhere. Because you'll always default to separating over minor minor details of theology. And probably only be content to end up in a house church with the two other families in your state that dot every I and cross every T just like you do. Theologically informed but uncaring people don't know how to see gray in their color spectrum. Everything is black and white, which results always in a default to separating over petty things. At the same time, if you're all heart, but you're theologically uninformed or unconcerned, gray is all you see. And you'll be prone to overlook error 
in your brothers and sisters for the sake of relationship, and you'll never be a real means of sanctification to anybody. You'll just have a lot of friends and be well-liked, which isn't helpful. So we're not seeking to be one or the other. We all, Christ fellowship, we all must be both. Ever increasing in our understanding of the being of our God. And ever concerned to come alongside our brothers and our sisters and connect theological dots for them that are not connected because theological disconnects, disconnects always manifest themselves in life disconnects. And life disconnects are where God's image is blurred to our community by his image bearers. When you think about the church, this is why we are here. We are. As in this particular church body, with its current complexion and diverse backgrounds and different nuances of belief and practice, we, as in Christ fellowship, this body is here for each other. To see Jesus Christ formed in each other so that we might be a greater reflection of him to each other and to our community. So if you're here for you, and you are being unhelpful. And again, if, if history is a gauge, you, you're probably not going to be here long. And when you leave here, you're just going to go somewhere else and be unhelpful there. And when you leave there, you'll probably go somewhere else and be unhelpful there. And that will not end. Not until a church finally gets it right by listening to you. That's not the solution. The solution is for you to get over you. But if you're here for something greater than you, which if you've been transformed by the gospel, that is why you are here. You're here for something greater than you. And that is the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel of the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus And if that's why you're here, then what it means to live in covenant with your brothers and sisters here is that you're in it for the long haul, no matter what. So you're in it through the frustrations. You're in it through the debates. You're you're in it through the tough conversations. And your motive in those things is not to make yourself look good and your perspective vindicated in the end. But your motive is the exaltation of Jesus Christ in others. Because you want others here to know the joy of knowing God more for their own sakes and for their usefulness in the advancement of the kingdom of God, here's sake. We've all met people and probably many of us have been the person. Um, We're total brains theologically. 
but who are the most unhelpful people in whatever church they are a part of. We've all met people, on the other hand, who just can't stomach theological conversation or debate at all, and who just think it's silly to make a big deal out of anything. And I just want to commend the work of the Spirit in Priscilla and Aquila to you, a lay couple in the church, a husband and a wife, so hear that, a man and a woman, for not scoffing at how off Apollos was and leaving the synagogue in disgust or not just willing to overlook a major gap in his theology and just agree to disagree. But I commend them to you for being theologically informed enough to know error when they hear it and being caring enough about Apollos and his own sanctification and his usefulness for the kingdom to take him aside and invest in him. And I want to commend Apollos to you as well for his humility and his submission to them and ultimately to the church at Ephesus. This story is awesome. Because here's a guy passionately and accurately teaching the word to others in the synagogue. And when he's done, he's confronted in love by a husband and a wife who'd come to him and say, in our terminology, can we meet up for coffee? Because you said something last Saturday that just we got to talk about. They apparently connect him to their church. And Apollos submits himself there to that body. And the end of the story is awesome because it's ultimately from that body that he's eventually sent out to another church body with a letter of recommendation where Verses 27 and 28 say that when Apollos was in Corinth, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. It's a glorious outcome to a very tough and and challenging situation. And I realize that's a long time in those verses, but reading them this week was, just to be very honest with you, it was the first time in my life that I've been able to see through the controversy of where was Apollos at and where were the 12 at. It was the first time that I've been able to see through it to what I think is a greater reality there. And I wanted to spend some time there to hopefully bring you past that to the greater reality there and challenge you to resorb, uh, absorb that and then re- reflect it yourself. So back to Paul in Ephesus. Our, our text tells us that he spends his first three months there in the synagogue. He's doing like he always does. He's speaking boldly and he's reasoning with the Jews about the kingdom of God tells us, though, that he stops doing what he's doing when some begin to speak evil about the way before the entire congregation. So Paul spends the next two years teaching daily in a lecture hall. 
And at the end of that two and a half to three year period, verse 10 of chapter 19 tells us that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, which probably doesn't mean that every single person in Asia heard the word coming out of Paul's mouth. It probably more accurately means that in the two and a half years he spent there in the synagogue or in the lecture hall, that every representative part of Asia came through Ephesus and heard the gospel taught from Paul and then took it back home with them. And it's entirely feasible considering in Paul's day, Ephesus was the main hub of all culture and, and commerce in Western Asia. People have labeled his time in Ephesus as the most strategic location in any of his journeys. The rest of this rather lengthy chapter, chapter 19, is just one incredible account after another of the gospel of Jesus Christ triumphing over false religion and idolatry and demonic activity in Ephesus, which is why I think verses 11 and 12 inform us of this this extraordinary phenomenon that accompanied Paul's ministry there. God was directly taking on the magic, the occult, the superstition in that city. So verse 11, we don't find this happening often. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And then look at the effect this is having on those who were immersed in the contrary in Ephesus. Verse 17, it says, the people there were seized with fear and the name of Jesus was extolled. So God was working through Paul in Ephesus in such a way as to exalt himself above the gods of wood and stone and silver and gold and the power that's associated with his name above the manipulatable and the purchasable power that was associated with the gods and the occult in Ephesus. So that when the seven sons of this Sceva try to manipulate the power of God to cast a demon out of a possessed man, God actually allows the demon to overcome all seven of these men and publicly shame them. And the demon's words are recorded for us, and they're amazing. He says, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Okay, so demonic, even demonic powers that no human power can control, know and obey and submit to Jesus. That's happening in Ephesus, and people are beginning to see this. And they're beginning to distinguish Jesus from all the others and those who don't harden their hearts and continue to resist are seized by his majesty, and they bow in submission to him. And it's not only in reference to new converts being made, but it's also in our text and in reference to repentance and the emboldening of some believers there who were still kind of messing around with things that the gospel had freed them from. 
So let me read verses 18 to 20 because they give a pretty vivid picture of what the gospel was doing in Ephesus. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. But, just like we've seen a few times now, going back into the gospel with Jesus after 2,000 pigs run off a cliff after he casts a legion of demons out of a man, and the townspeople beg Jesus to leave, and then again with Paul and Silas and Philippi, as they cast a demon out of a fortune-telling girl at the expense of those who were using her to get rich from her. Even so, now the gospel taking root in Ephesus and overcoming all forms of false religion and transforming self-centered, greedy hearts, that transformation affected the pocketbooks of those who were making a living getting rich off the very gods that were being toppled in Ephesus by the gospel. It's in texts like these that Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10 come alive. You know the verse, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Make no mistake that in every instance I've just cited the response of the people against Jesus or against Jesus or Paul and Silas in Philippi or against Paul alone in Ephesus. The response of the people was never out of concern for the maniac in the tombs who's now in his right mind or the slave girl who's being used to make money for greedy men in Philippi or in Ephesus here, the honor of the goddess Artemis, as Demetrius would like you to believe every time it's money. Blinding the greedy from seeing and embracing and rejoicing in the greater good that's happening right before their very eyes. And ultimately keeping them out of the kingdom of God, just like Jesus in the Gospels warned it probably would. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter into the kingdom. It's all over these texts. Demetrius is a silversmith. He made silver shrines to the goddess Artemis. And according to verse 24 of chapter 19, he, he himself brought a lot of business to the craftsmen of the city. So converts to Jesus equals less worshipers of Artemis, which means less work and less gain for those who made statues of her and built temples to her. So Demetrius gets these guys together and creates a panic among them. 
that has everything to do with their wealth and only Artemis as a means to their getting rich. Just listen to his own words. Verse 25. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrespute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world Worship in verse 28 says, when they heard this, they were enraged and they began crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The panic that has been stirred here is definitely felt in the text as suddenly things in the text begin to have the feel of their speeding up. So, Suddenly, it says, the city is filled with confusion and three, ultimately, of two at once and then one later on. Three of Paul's companions are seized and everyone's just being funneled into this massive 25,000, by report, 25,000 person theater in the city. And verse 32 says, many of the people who were being funneled into this tense atmosphere, they didn't even know why they were there. All they knew is everyone is angry and crying out in defense of one of their gods and that they've seized three people who have apparently done something to instigate this. And in the theater, the atmosphere is just definitely one of volatility and and chaos. And Paul wants to rush in to the defense of his friends, but the disciples in Ephesus won't let him and the only thing that spares a complete tragedy from taking place in the theater in reference to Gaius and Aristarchus and Alexander is when the town clerk stands up and calls for order and lawful procedure and then as quickly as things get really tense in the city they just dissolve and he dismisses the assembly at the end of our text in verse 41 That's three years in Ephesus. Paul is going to leave Ephesus shortly into our text next week. He's already hinted at that in a couple verses that we didn't even mention in verses 21 and 22 of this chapter. But his time in Ephesus has displayed for all to see the power of the gospel not only over false religion and idolatry and the occult, but over the human heart as well. Okay, so just at a very base level, apply that. There is no false religion or superstition or demonic activity in Sun Prairie. That the gospel has not doomed at the cross and cannot triumph over today. Nor is there any human heart over which it cannot do the same. And that's where you're supposed to think of you, your heart. So 
So in what area might the power of the gospel be working to overcome in your heart this morning? We've, we've mentioned a few from our text, beginning most importantly with believing in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. The gospel has the power to bring you from unbelief to belief in Jesus. And if you're in unbelief right now, I'm praying that the gospel will bring you to belief in Jesus and that you let us know about that so that we can rejoice with you and help you. But it also includes a few other things we've mentioned, namely the, the hunger to not get lazy, but to continue to know him more and more and more and not or and so in coordination with the sincere care to help others in your own church family know him more. It's interesting and really helpful that combining Paul's time in Ephesus in the book of Acts with what he later wrote that church, that this is Paul's very prayer for these people. That they'll continue to increase in their understanding of him and that they'll just continue to love on each other and so be a reflection of him to their world. And that being Paul's prayer for them it's ultimately my prayer for us so let me read as I close that section from Ephesians 1 and then I'll pray Paul says for this reason because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for letting us in the 21st century journey with your servants in the first century. Thank you how 
The message that transformed them is the message that transformed us. Thank you that the message that Paul prayed would continue to transform those who had already been transformed is the same message that will transform those of us who've been transformed. And Father, we recognize that it is entirely a work of the Spirit that came at the expense of the shed blood of Christ. So Father, as your word has been read and hopefully explained and applied in a helpful way, Lord, we we walk away now understanding that in order for this to have any transforming power, it's never merely words coming out of a human being's mouth. But as we so often say, it must be the word going forth and continuing to go forth as we leave here in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is going to permanently affect any change in us. And our prayer is that all of us would always be being changed, conformed into the image of our God so that we might be as a church in this community the most accurate reflection of him that we can be. So now, Lord, we gladly leave all this in your care. In Jesus' name, amen.